Welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Robbins, and here we explore life, death, consciousness, and what it all means. Today on the show, I will be talking with Susan Angel Miller. Susan is a mother, wife, and author of an incredibly powerful and touching memoir called Permission to Thrive. She is passionate about sharing her personal story of grief and recovery in order to help others give voice to their own experiences. Through these candid conversations about death and loss, her hope is that you come away with a realistic message of hope, that through the struggle with adversity, we all have the ability to gain wisdom and growth. Welcome, Susan. Hi there. I'm going to run through the public service announcements, hopefully quicker than you can fast forward through through this part of the show, which is my guess of what many of you probably do. So if you have not subscribed to my newsletter yet, I have not been super great about sending it out, but I am recommitting to it for the fall. So please go ahead and do that at dramyrobbins.com. You'll get updates on what the upcoming shows are, as well as my uh, bi-weekly soul wisdoms, where I just bring you information that comes to me in meditation. So if you go ahead and subscribe or subscribe to my newsletter. Also, if you are subscribed to my podcast or think you are, you might not be because Apple just updated their podcast app. And so you might no longer be following me. So if you go to the podcast app, you can click on follow. I think it's three dots at the top and just click follow to resubscribe you to my show. Just make sure this way you're getting all the new episodes. Uh, also, you can find me on YouTube where I am videoing with the guests. So you can see that. Not sure videoing is actually a word, but we just made it one. And lastly, oh, there's two more things. Patreon, you can contribute to the show, which I would be so grateful for. Just go to patreon.com and put in my name. And lastly, Fireside, super exciting platform. It is in the iOS store right now, the app store. You can only get it if you have an iPhone device, but here you can partake live in the conversation. So it's an awesome way to listen to the show and ask questions of my guests if you have them. Most of the shows are on Thursdays, but if you follow me on Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins, I always post when the shows are. So check all of that out. Thank you for your support, and here is today's show. Can you start, I started your book, we talked a little bit before, and I could not put it down. It was so captivating, it was so moving. Can you tell us, I, th I think I read the entire thing in two hours, I was telling you I read it on the plane home, I started it thinking I'll just start it for a little bit, couldn't put it down, sobbing, for the majority of it, my husband looked at me and said, what are you reading? It, it is such a compelling, moving story about loss and the ability to, to, to move on. Can you tell us a bit about your story? Well, thanks. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. Um, I really enjoy sharing my story. And obviously, it's the reason why I wrote the book. I never expected to do something like that. But I guess our, our story was something that I thought could help other people. Um, the, the basic 
premise of the story, which is my life, which is hard to believe, is that we were a family of, um, my husband and I met in high school. We have three daughters. Um, it was 2009, um, in January. And my oldest daughter, Laura was having headaches for a couple of weeks. And we just thought, okay, she's, you know, 14 years old, headaches are normal. And she was in the middle of finals and a pretty nervous kid anyway. So we just kind of let it go. And it kept getting worse. And I started, you know, getting a little bit concerned. And then one morning um, she woke up, she was sleeping next to me because my husband was out of town and she threw up seven times. And she then asked me why I had four eyes. And within the next 45 minutes, she had had a seizure. So she had been, you know, she had been in school on Tuesday afternoon. This was just Wednesday morning. Um, we called 911. They rushed to get to, to see what was going on. She woke up, they took her to the hospital. And at the hospital, they did a quick CT scan and told us that um, she had a mass at the back of her head. So I remember sitting back in my chair, absorbing the information and couldn't believe what was happening, but then thought, well, okay, she, she has something, a tumor in her head, they'll remove it, it'll be benign and we'll go on. And that's, that's what I thought would happen because that's how our life had always been up until that point. Mm -hmm. And later that afternoon, we had her have an MRI and the surgeon said he would operate in two days. It was operable. But by the end of, toward the end of the night, her headaches kept getting worse. And I don't think they realized how severe it was. And we were in her room. She was complaining. They gave her some pain medicine and she stopped breathing. They rushed her down for a, to put a shunt in, to try to relieve the brain pressure. And when the surgeon came out, he, you could tell that something wasn't right. And he said, the procedure went okay, but she's not responding the way we'd like. And the next thing we knew, we were in the ICU unit and she, Laura was hooked up to every machine possible. And as a mom, I, I just immediately knew she wasn't there. It happened that quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you felt like her soul was gone. I'm sorry. I, you, uh, I just said you felt like her soul was gone. Yes. I, I think I write in the book that I, I felt the presence of her absence. Mm. Like I, and, and the truth is when, when I look back, the medical professionals knew how serious it was, how critical it was at that time. They didn't clue us into that, um, thankfully, I guess. But she wasn't responding to pain even at that point. She had obviously stopped breathing for too many minutes and the brain tumor had pressed on her brainstem. This is what we learned later, that it was a very aggressive childhood brain cancer that's very rare. It's called medulloblastoma and it only affects like 250 to 500 kids a year in the U.S. So she basically won the lottery in reverse, mm -hmm. um, something that isn't supposed to happen. You know, a child isn't supposed to be in school on a Tuesday afternoon doing all the teenage things and be basically legally brain dead on Wednesday night. So it was um, a shock to all of us, to the community, to the her classmates who had just seen her. And it began our journey from being a private family 
to being a very public one that was grieving the loss of their daughter and trying to navigate what do you do in that situation and when every life assumption has been pulled out from under you. Mm-hmm. And I think what you illuminate beautifully in the book is this notion of, of sort of, I think what so many people think it's like, well, I did everything right. Right. Like I was a good person. I contributed to my community. I was a part of my kids school and we, you know, were a tight family and whatever the stories are that we tell ourselves that we think in some way are going to prevent those things from happening to us. And we, I would probably argue we all do that in some form or fashion. You're, you're, at, you're, you're, you're nailing it on the head. Um, we had always believed that for the first 43 years of our life, we had lived kind of an idyllic life. I'd had a sheltered childhood. We thought if you follow the rules, then life goes the way it's supposed to. If you're a good person, then bad things don't happen to you. We, I really thought that the news stories of tragedies were just that. They were news stories and that we were somehow protected. That, um, and it was like a real wake-up call that that's not how the world works and that life is unfair and that life is full of struggle and challenge. And now we were part of that journey and we would have to figure out how to navigate it. And, you know, we were 43 at the time and had um, two other younger daughters who were nine and 12. And my husband and I pretty quickly realized that we, we couldn't sacrifice their lives to what to what we couldn't get back. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to live without Laura, but we didn't have a choice. And so we just kept putting one foot in front of the other, but that doesn't mean that it was easy in any way. And it's hard talking with you right now to be able to encompass the, the sadness and the grief and the stress and the pain. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book because through writing, it really helped me process what was going through my head, which was a jumble of everything. Well, and and one of the things that I found when reading the book was when we think about building a life for ourselves, we don't necessarily think about what, how to build that life around what we would do if a tragedy, like this is to me was like a terrible, terrible tragedy befalls us, right? Um, and yet, you, what I was struck by with you is that what seemed to keep you going was really this amazing community that came in and lifted you up. And I mean, I can, I could just cry talking about it because, (laughs) because I'm a very emotional person, but also because it was so beautiful to see. And I think, frankly, the Jewish faith does this quite well, right? We gather extremely well in, in milestone situations, particularly around death, but that, that they just, everybody kind of came in and was there. And it felt to me in so many ways that that community is what pulled you, helped to pull you through. Yes. Um, boy, um, that is one of the biggest messages that I want to communicate through the book is in the 10 or so years, maybe 15 years before Laura passed away, I was just part of the community. I had really put myself out there volunteering in the Jewish community, in the non-Jewish community, at their the children's schools, 
and just building up valuing friendships and value, valuing relationships and nurturing them. Fortunately, mm. it was my saving grace because if we had just been new to a community, if we didn't have a whole lot of family or friends nearby, it would have been so much more challenging. And and yes, that happens sometimes and people still will deal with what they've been given. You know, there's no no contest in grief, <laughs> but we we really benefited from the friendships that we had made and they stepped up in a way that I'm still, I still tear up thinking about some, you know, some friends moved, moved away or distanced themselves from us because they didn't really know how to deal with grief and it hit too close to home. You know, if our child could die, could their kid die also? And it, but some friends that I didn't think were, you know, best friends just, they witnessed my pain. They knew how to sit with me and hold my hand and not judge me for how I was behaving and just listen to me tell the story again and again as a way to let me my brain process the unthinkable. And yeah. Well, and that's the remarkable piece, right? I mean, this happens any to anybody that I've spoken to patients, whomever it is, say that there are certain people who can step up and certain people who have to pull away. And it's not, it's not a judgment, right? It's like sometimes we can only emotionally tolerate so much that we, and, and it's so, you know, I was talking about this the other night with some friends uh, that when something like this happens, we all try to distance ourselves in whatever way possible, right? Like, oh, well, they did this or they smoked or they, you know, uh, you know, they didn't take care of themselves or they got behind the wheel of a car with someone who was drinking. Whatever it is, we all try to like say, oh, well, that's why it's not going to happen to me. Um, but the reality is it, it can happen to any of us at any time. You're right. And not only I found that talking to parents when I was picking up my child from tennis class or whatever after Laura died and they would ask me, well, how long had Laura been in the hospital? And I would say, she hadn't been in the hospital up until now. She had been a very healthy child. And you could tell the fear in their eyes from that because they did. They wanted to distance themselves. And what I've, just, I, what I've learned is that, I mean, our society, our Western culture just doesn't do death well. Mm-hmm. And we don't teach people how to be there for each other. And it's something that I'm now passionate about now that I've experienced something so close to me, some such a close person dying and going through all of this grief and distress. I want other people to know some simple things about how do you deal with someone who's facing a challenging time or has lost a loved one? And, and the answer is pretty simple. Um, you know, one of the biggest things is just show up for the person. Mm-hmm. Don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that and that means like show up in whatever way you know how, right? Like it might be, can I take your kid to school or can I make you dinner or can I drive you somewhere? It doesn't have to be showing up and saying, tell me your story and let me sit with, with your story. Exactly. People think, oh, if I'm not a cook, then I can't help them out because I don't want to be on the meal train. You know, I don't want to help with the meal because I'm not a, a, a baker or whatever. And the reality is, even if it was someone reaching out by text or email or Facebook 
or stopping by with some flowers or asking me if I wanted to walk. Did I want to walk on Tuesday or Thursday? Oh, I'm at Costco. Can I pick you pick something up from you for you? I'm right here. I can drop it off at your house. What do you need? Um, and I, I learned very quickly that any offer of help was better than nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the community was everything. So, oh God, there's, there's a couple directions I want to go here. So one, how do you go on when something like this happens? Because there's even more to this story that I feel like we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. Um, you know, and I want to also talk a little bit so you can kind of choose your own adventure here in terms of which way you want to go about uh, what you decided to do with your daughter's organs. Because that was such a powerful part of this story. It, it is a power. probably what kept me crying like through this, oh. this second third of the book. It, it is a powerful part of the story that ends up being a real light in our, in our darkness and feels like a miracle to me. Um, well, let me go back and tell what it is. Um, in the hospital, when after we saw Laura for the first time in the ICU unit, it took about three days after for the doctors to do a couple of MRIs um, on Laura and to make sure that they had done everything they could for her. Um, and then on that Saturday morning, so we brought her in on a Wednesday and on Saturday morning, we went for the final MRI with Laura and the surgeon told us that Laura had suffered an irreversible brain bleed and that she was legally brain dead, that it wasn't survivable. Separate from the tumor. From the tumor. It was a brain bleed because of her lack of oxygen or because the brain tumor pressed down on her brain stem. At least that's what I've learned. And and even if she had had surgery, there would have been, it, it was um, a type of cancer that was so virulent that it would have killed her. It just might've been three weeks or three months, but what happened is it killed her in like, you know, eight hours. And from it the time only, of you only know it once it shows up. And by the time it shows up, it's so bad that there's <clears> not much you can do. Sometimes that's what happens with medulloblastomas. Um, it, it, it's unusual, but what we experienced was not out of the, out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, it just isn't something that anyone ever hears about happening. I mean, how many kids get diagnosed with a brain tumor and then die within 24 hours? Right. Just doesn't happen, but it, it happened to us. Mm-hmm. Just like crazy things happen to everyone. Um, we just don't always know about it. Right. So we were in the family waiting room after we learned of Laura's legal brain death. We were with family and I remember a woman in a white coat, a nurse walked in and asked my husband and I, she gave us, she, she said she was so sorry to hear the news. And that was our first condolence that we would ever hear from anyone. And then she asked us if we would be willing to consider donating Laura's organs. And this was just, you know, minutes or hours after learning of her actual death. We didn't know what to think. I remember thinking, okay, we know about organ donation from just life and, and movies and TV shows. And we think it's a noble concept, a very generous concept in the abstract as theory, never ever imagining that it would be something that we would have to decide for our family, for our oldest amazing daughter, who, you know, we loved beyond to the moon and back. And I mean, a thousand things were running through our head and 
one of them to me was, you know, what will she need them in her death? Mm. It, it made death very practical issue for me. Mm-hmm. It made it, I'd been raised in the Jewish faith, but I realized that what did Christians believe? What did Muslims believe? What did other religions think about an afterlife or what, what would we do? And, but we realized that if we buried her with her organs intact, our decision would be made for us forevermore. And our 12 year old daughter, Sarah, somehow was part of this conversation. She was in the room. And I remember her coming up to us and saying, mom and dad, why wouldn't you donate Laura's organs if her organs could save someone's life? Mm. It was that simple. Like she was so passionate about it. And it really, um, it kind of gave us no choice. I think we would have gotten to that decision. She got us there quicker. Mm-hmm. Because here she had just lost her older sister and she was telling us what she thought we should do. And at, we wanted- At 12, to, at 12, At right? 12. Not at and 25. We, we needed- we needed that glimmer of hope in this tragedy. And we saw this as just a tiny little potential for some good coming out of something that was so meaningless at the time. Mm-hmm. And so tell us what, what organs did you donate and what happened and how the process normally works? So um, we were given um, quite a long list of choices, but the, what I, we decided was to donate her internal organs. I think there's seven, seven internal organs, your, you know, kidneys, pancreas, heart, lungs, um, liver. And what ended up happening is, um, her liver matched, her liver matched a woman in New York. And there's a lot behind that story. I don't know how much you want to go into it. Um, but the, I guess the, the, the upshot is we left the hospital knowing that her liver was accepted for, from, for somebody else, that it was a match. And later that week after we got home from the hospital, we did learn it was a very special story that her liver had been, um, had been given to a, a 40-year-old special education teacher and she was doing fine from it. See, here I am crying again, even though I know the story. In the the last, what is it, 12 or 13 years since the donation happened, we've now met Trish. Her name's Trish O'Neill. She lives in upstate New York, and we've met her and her family four or five times. And we keep in Facebook contact, texting. We wish each other happy birthdays. She remembers Laura on her death anniversary She's someone who we got to meet and she's like part of our family now. And she now has had 12 and a half years of life that she would not have been able to live. She was number one on the liver transplant list and she had been in a liver coma for 10 days prior to this happening. And so it was, it was, it was a miracle because usually, usually people who have cancer aren't even eligible to be donors, but through some miraculous coincidences and cancer doctors that were really fighting for Trish and our team at Children's Hospital that was fighting to make sure it could happen, the two universes aligned in a way that I still don't believe happened sometimes. 
it's still hard for me to believe that Laura's liver has sustained Trish for 12 years. And whenever I see a picture of Trish and her extended family, she has four brothers and sisters. She has a 95 and 90 year old parents. Whenever I see their extended family picture, I realize how impactful our decision was because if she had died, which she would have done within hours um, of her having had the transplant, her whole family would have gone through grief in the same way our family had to go through grief. So we spared them that. And we, by that one decision, we saved a life. Mm-hmm. And that has given us an incredible amount of meaning and my children an incredible amount of meaning. And your daughter has since gone on to be a fierce advocate. for organ My daughter, Sarah, who was the one that convinced us to do the donation, now has a nonprofit that is focused solely on educating high school and college students about the importance of organ donation. It's changed her life. What is the percentage that when you get a match, it takes and it takes for as long as it like it because there can be a lot of issues around it. Right. And so the fact about that matching, matching and then the body not rejecting. Absolutely. And- There's lots of different medical um, you know, tests that need to get done. And, and in Laura's case, um, her organs had to be tagged with the, the um, idea that, that she had cancer with the reality that she was a, a, a cancer, a, a cancer victim. Mm-hmm. And when someone's on a waiting list, you don't necessarily want to accept an organ that has a potential for cancer. So that's why the liver was the one organ that matched and the other organs were never recovered. They never matched anybody um, because of that. And so, um, you know, Trisha's family didn't have a choice. And fortunately, she does not have cancer. She's really just doing amazingly well. And Even though brain cancer is mostly contained in the brain, right? Like other cancers can spread, but isn't it that brain cancer is typically contained? And if exact. cancer metastasizes, it will metastasize to the brain, but not from the brain. Something like that. But I think it's a, it can be a little bit more complicated. And this was a pretty virulent cancer. So they still had to make sure that it was, it was um, you know, a, a worthwhile thing to do. So, but it's been... It has been this, you know, we talk about silver linings of the pandemic and, and looking at kind of the positive side to situations. And there are a couple of things that my husband and I took out of this experience pretty quickly. And one of them was, well, if she had to die from this horrible cancer, we were thankful that it happened as quickly as it did so that Laura didn't have to know her mortality. Mm-hmm. She only was... Um, pretty much awake with this knowledge for a couple hours with the pain of the headaches. Mm -hmm. And people will say to us, well, you didn't get to say goodbye. And I think it wasn't our choice. And anyway, what are you going to say to a 14-year-old daughter when you say goodbye? I mean, Mm -hmm. we we know she knew we loved her. We had a, a loving relationship. There was nothing left to be said. Oh, and that's... so I, the fact that she didn't have to suffer to us was a blessing, even though it sounds kind of crazy, but we almost immediately felt kind of this, we were fortunate that it happened the way it did. But again, we had no choice. And I've learned that people losing loved ones, the way people die, it affects their grief. It, it, 
it does make a difference in how people process their grief and, and move through it. And I think my husband and I just realized we didn't want to live the next 40 or 50 years of our life miserable, and we didn't want to sacrifice the lives of our children to what had happened. Well, so, and what you said is that, which I think is so important, and I want people to, this is kind of the crux of a lot of what I talk about, is we don't know what tomorrow will bring. So do the people who you love today know how much you love them? Have you told them? Have you shared that with them? Have you, you know, reached out to a friend you've been thinking about and just let them know? Because then when something like this happens, you're not like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have hung up on them the last time we spoke, right? Or I wish I would have been kinder to them. It's just like, uh, I, I, lived, I lived in love. You, you know, you're, you're right. It, it gave us a lot of, a lot of peace that we didn't have anything really unresolved with her. And yet I, I know that relationships aren't always like that. Right. So I've had to do a lot of learning myself about talking about grief with other people and realizing that our story was our story and other people's stories are their stories. And my grief journey is unique amongst all others. And I wouldn't want mine compared to anyone. And I wouldn't want, I can see why people don't want theirs compared or judged. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are lots of situations where there is, there could be blame, you know, someone drove drunk and and killed Mm -hmm. the daughter, someone, Mm -hmm. or there there's, you know, there's just so many different types of, of, ways people die and relationships. And when I think about grief and talk about grief, you know, it's about mental health. It's really, it's not so scary anymore to me because once you've lived through something this horrific, everything else kind of pales in comparison. And you just have to get a different perspective about what the rules of life are all about. Mm -hmm. I had to flip my whole perspective toward, toward gratitude, which in my previous life would have sound so hokey, like, oh, come on, gratitude. Gratitude's not going to get you there. Mm. And the reality is it changed everything for me. And, and one of the first, one of my favorite quotes is, is gratitude is, is turning what you have into enough. Oh. Gratitude yeah. is turning yeah. what you have into enough. And it, it meant that we had to think about what we still had, which is I had a loving husband and supportive husband. I had a lovely home. We still had two beautiful daughters, a community. We felt fortunate, even, even. Well, and I think what you said about grief is about mental health. And, you know, what I said wasn't to minimize like, oh, you should just walk around like loving everybody. I think it's about those unresolved feelings that you might have too, working on resolving those like as quick, as soon as you can, right? Like not waiting for a loved one that you have unresolved issues with to die, but, and that, and that might not, might not mean ever coming to a place where you love that person, but it means resolving that within yourself and your relationship with them within yourself. So when they, when something does happen, which it will, you have come to a resolution that you are okay with before you don't get a choice to figure out how you want to deal with the situation. I guess I, I would agree. I mean, and that's the that is the ideal 
that's the ideal situation. And also, if that's not the case, you still have to confront the emotions that you have after the grief, whatever that grief or loss might be. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other thing that I like to explain is that grief is not just about loss. I mean, the grief is not just about a death of somebody. No. It's about the loss of something in your life that you held dear. It could be a job. It could be your finances. It could be a loss of a marriage, you know, a divorce. And it could be the pandemic, the lost opportunities, the loss of freedom. And I think if we think about grief in that way, it makes, it changes the scariness of it. And it makes us realize that, yeah, if you bury the feelings surrounding loss, you're, you're going to get stuck mm-hmm. and you're going to have those feelings buried under the surface and they're going to fester like a wound. And the way we were able to get through our craziness and our despair or our grief, whatever you call it, is by going right through it. I mean, again and again and again. And, you know, when they talk about grief coming in waves, it's exactly how it felt like to me. You could have periods at the beginning, it was maybe you'd have a day or two when you would feel okay. And then the grief wave would come over you and you'd feel like you were drowning. And then all of a sudden you thought that you'd be depressed for the next 20 years. And then all of a sudden it would lift and you'd feel a little bit brighter. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, I've also learned I'm, I'm going on, but I, I've learned that you can, you can also feel the happiness and the sadness at the same time. Right. Right. Yeah. So it holds multiple feelings. Exactly. All at once. Well, and I, and I really appreciate what you said too about, uh, the loss isn't, you lost your daughter, but you lost also a whole bunch of, I'm sure, fantasies about what her life was going to look like and what your life was going to look like with her in it. And all of those pieces that are tied to it that we often don't think about in our day-to-day lives, but that there's so much that's tied to like, I'm assuming like high school graduation and weddings and, you know, all these things that we imagine our life to look like. Right. And that's, and that's why grief is something that you have to carry along with you for the rest of your life. It's, I've heard it compared to like rocks in a backpack that you're wearing forever, but you learn how to carry, you, you have to learn how to carry it and and that's just the reality. And, and people deal with loss. People are dealing with loss in, in so many fashions, right? Everyone loses their parents, a sibling, a, a, you know, more rarely a child. But friends, that grief comes up at the, at the happy occasions, at the sad occasions. Every day you're thinking about it in some way. And so that's one of the things that, Um, When I, when people will say to me, well, what, what should I, what should I do for someone who's lost a loved one? And I say, well, you know, don't, don't avoid talking about the person either because that person lived and meant the world to me. And if you bring up Laura's name, it's not like you're going to remind me that she was my daughter. It's not like you're going to remind me that I, that she died. I'm thinking about her 24 Mm seven. So so I would say 
make sure you show up for people and also make sure you don't make sure you mention the person's name. Don't be afraid to mention the person's name. And I hear that all the time when people are talking about grief, like just that's the, that's the most meaningful thing you can do is acknowledge my child's name or my loved one's name or whomever it is. Cause I haven't forgotten that they're gone. Yep. So, okay. So tell us what happened next in your life story, because for those of you who are listening live on Fireside, I'm sure you will have something to say about this. Um, but what, what happened after a couple of years? So let's see, how do we go about this? Um, so Laura passed away in February 21st of 2009. We did our grieving. We were up, our family's life was upended for the next couple of years but we started getting back to some normalcy. You know, the kids were in, I don't even know, uh, fourth, third, fourth, fifth grade, middle schoolers. They were doing all the tennis and dance and, you know, things that normal families do. And we had to just keep going forward. And we were planning my third daughter's bat mitzvah that was coming up in um, 2012. So, in September of 2012, I start having some headaches and, you know, just thought it was stress from, from planning this next family occasion, which had a lot of stress related to it, a lot of emotional baggage. And, you know, I would take some Tylenol, I'd have a glass of wine and the headaches would go away. And here this family occasion was coming up and I didn't want to worry my children, didn't want to worry my husband sometime in the middle of the night. Many times I would wake up with a a bad headache, which I've learned later is not such a great thing. And I hid the symptoms, got through the bat mitzvah. And 10 days after, I thought, hmm, the headaches aren't going away and I shouldn't be so stressed. And I went for an MRI with um, the radiologist was a friend of ours, took my husband, fortunately, and the radiologist brought us into his room and told me, Susan, I can't sugarcoat this, but you have an aggressive brain tumor. And if this was a movie, it would have faded to black because I, all I could hear was blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I couldn't process it because those were honestly the same few words that were told to me about Laura's brain tumor, that she had an aggressive brain tumor. And here she had passed away within eight hours. So fortunately, the radiologist did tell me that he thought this was a meningioma, that it was a benign tumor that could be removed. So that was my little bit of hope. But if you're the mom of a child who had a brain tumor and now you're diagnosed with a brain tumor, a doctor telling you that the two are unrelated doesn't compute because how many family members usually get, you know, brain tumors in the same family. Well, and I just think about like the sheer panic that you would have with that diagnosis, separate from the fact that you lost your daughter to that. Same thing. It, it was, um, it was a surreal experience. It was kind of an out of body experience. Um, I remember Ron and I walked up the stairs, we're out into the parking lot. Oh, and, and the, the, the radiologist 
called my my internist who had discounted my complaints the month earlier. She she thought it was not kind of in my head. She thought it was emotional baggage and had given me Xanax temporarily um, because she said, you know, your daughter had a brain tumor. You don't have a brain tumor. So the going back to the story, the the radiologist basically said, you need to go right away to the hospital. You need to have it removed. So my husband and I got out to the parking lot and we just went into crisis mode. We had been here before and we started calling friends and family and telling them what had happened and no one could believe it. People thought they were getting spam emails because what family does this happen to? Mm -hmm. So I got, I went, my husband drove me to the hospital, let me off at the door of the hospital and he kissed me goodbye. And I had to check myself into the hospital by myself because he had the job of telling my two daughters when they came home from school that their mother had a brain tumor. I mean, so. That when people say like, I can't imagine like losing a child, right? It's not that I've said this before on the show. It's not that you can't imagine it. It's probably that you don't want to imagine it because it's, it feels like the just your heart's going to explode and you're going to die. But I honestly cannot imagine you losing your child and then being diagnosed with a brain tumor. That seems just truly unimaginable. I'm, I'm glad that you, I mean, I'm glad that people can't imagine it because it's not something that it, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it's beyond scary. Um, and now I know that people experience very scary things in their life different in different ways that I'll never know mm-hmm. in different traumas, you know, early childhood traumas and violence and sexual abuse and war and, and yeah. all sorts of atrocities and just normal occurrences that I, I hope I don't have to imagine it either, but but I have learned that we're resilient. I mean, people are really resilient and we we take what we are thrown and we have a choice. I mean, it's a choice of how do we respond. And, and how we respond is based on the resources we have available to us and the relationships we have and the attitude we have and the education and all sorts of, um, of things like that. So... Basically, I get rushed to the hospital and I look out the window in the room I'm put into and across the street from Freighter Hospital is the entrance to Children's Hospital, which is where Laura had died, you know, three years before. Within 24 hours, I basically had two different procedures. There was major full-on brain surgery, five hours of brain surgery, and fortunately, everything turned out okay. I left the hospital three days after the brain surgery and recuperated over the next couple of months. But almost immediately after the brain surgery, I felt like I was flying high. I felt like I was so grateful for having survived, for not having to plan a bat mitzvah anymore, for having my community members and friends come by with food. I was starving because I was on a high dose of steroids so life was good in those recovery weeks. And again, what really was overwhelming to me in a way I will never forget, it was about the most religious experience I've had on the steroids, is I felt joy, I felt peace, I felt 
like all of the things that Oprah and Deepak Chopra say about love and gratitude and at one with the universe and friendship. And it all kind of came together for me in those recovery weeks after the surgery. Mm. I kind of got what was important. And Mm. I knew that I had a story now that I felt connected to Laura in this cosmic way because she had had this tumor. She had been, this is the crazy part. She was brought into the hospital by ambulance on a Wednesday. I was told to go immediately to the hospital on a Wednesday. She was supposed to have brain surgery on a Friday. I ended up having the brain surgery that she never had. Hmm. So yes, our tumors were very different. They were both brain tumors, but hers was highly cancerous and mine was fortunately completely benign and removable and curable. But the two things were quite intense in terms of the storyline. And and as a result, my story has given me purpose and meaning that I wish everyone could feel. It's it's part of who I am now. And it's the reason that the book had to come to be, even though I wasn't a writer, because I wanted to tell people of that purpose and meaning that, that you can bring out of a tragedy. So let's talk just for a few more minutes about the title of the book is Permission to Thrive. How have you not only lived, but thrived? And what do you attribute that to? I know we touched a little on that well, as we've talked. So a year after my brain surgery, I was talking to my sister-in-law. My sister-in-law had been working with veterans, um, acclimating back to civilian life. And she knew what I was going through. And she said, have you ever heard, you've heard of post-traumatic growth, haven't you? And I, I looked at her and I didn't, had never heard those three words together before but I somehow knew what they meant. And it, it made me relax just knowing that you can have growth after trauma. I had always heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. We all have. But the fact that you could say post-traumatic growth meant that maybe I wasn't as alone as I thought I had been in thriving even after a daughter had passed away, even after brain surgery. So she left and I immediately Googled post-traumatic growth. And it's this area of positive psychology that that kind of blew my mind because it talks about greater appreciation for life, added purpose, you're more open to spirituality, you have deeper friendships, all of this stuff. And I was just checking off the boxes in my head and thinking, "These these are all the things that have happened to me in the wake of Laura's death and the brain surgery. And I never understood it and I felt guilty about it. And now I could learn about an area that was hopeful and a kind of a universal message for lots of people who go through trauma. Mm -hmm. That, you know, the majority of people do survive it, do survive these types of situations and they actually gain wisdom. So that's, I think, how I've been able to perceive my thriving is that I knew that it could happen, it it happened to me, and then I could rationalize it because I now understood that it's it's something that happens more often than not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we shouldn't, we shouldn't not allow ourselves to smile. I mean, 
for the next, my daughter would not have wanted me to never smile again. Right. It's like, how, how miserable are we supposed to be after someone dies, right? You're supposed to live. The life is for the living. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, that's where the, the tight, the term, you know, permission to thrive. I just wanted people to, it, it just hit, it hit the theme of the book. It, of my, of our story. It was, you're the only one that can give yourself the permission to, to grieve, to be okay, to be better than okay. And to even gain wisdom and meaning from the challenges of life. And we had to do that for ourselves. No one else could do it. Right. Well, Susan, this is just, your story is incredible. And I encourage people to go out and buy the book. It's powerful. And I think that what the message I hope people, part of what I hope people take away is you don't have to wait for something like this to happen, to start deepening relationships, to explore spirituality, which is a lot of what I do on the podcast, to connect with meaningful organizations, to find a way to make meaning in your life. You don't need to have these experiences to then say, and you were doing that already, which I think allowed you to even deepen it more once this all happened. Exactly. And I think it's, I've often heard, I've heard of it actually called pre-traumatic growth, prepare for the growth. Everyone's worried about when is that next shoe going to drop, right? When's the bad event going to happen to me and my family? Well, that event's going to happen at some point. We just don't know when and we don't know what. So I say the, the healthier physically, psychologically, mentally we are before that eventuality happens, the better we're going to be able to handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, the groundwork was there. Yes. Even Very though true. it blew your belief system, your whole belief system out of the water, right? If I'm a good person, bad things don't happen to me. And I'll exactly. never forget, you probably know the book, but I read it when I was probably 18 or when I experienced my loss. And uh, I had a couple of friends who died tragically at a young age and just couldn't wrap my mind around it. And there's that book, When Bad Things, when, when Bad Things Happen to Good People, written by a rabbi, Rabbi Kushner, yeah. I think it is. Uh, yeah. and, and I remember just like that book, the title just hit home because I think my belief system was, well, if I'm just good, nothing bad's ever going to happen. Exactly. And that's exactly. not the way the world works. Victor Frankl's book, The Man's Search for Meaning, is another one where he went through the Holocaust and still realized that you can control your response even to the most horrific things. Mm-hmm. So, Susan, if people want to reach out, and I'm going to open it up if anybody has any questions here on Fireside, but if people want to reach out and hear more about you, where can they do that? How can they find out about your book, your speaking engagements? whatever it yeah. is. Thank you for asking. Um, well, they can go to susanangelmiller.com. I have a website and you can, um, I was fortunate enough to be able to audio record my own book last summer. So it's available in, you know, audiobook or ebook or paperback. And you can get that at, you know, on Amazon or through any bookseller. And um, I guess you, you were the out. only person who could have recorded that book because I don't think anybody could record that book without crying. I, I'm glad I did it myself. And it was a very emotional experience, even 
me knowing the story. I hadn't read through my book like that in a couple of years or a, at least a year and a half. And it's interesting. You re, you write a book and then and then you 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 keep progressing in your journey. And when you re, go read back your own book, it's amazing what you've put in the book, and it's amazing what you thought was in the book and that is still just in your head. Mm -hmm. So it was a really great experience to read through it again. And there are some people that just like listening rather than reading. Yeah. So I, I, I captured a whole nother market of people that, you know, just want to listen. And, um, you know, on my website, you can always, you know, reach out to me through the contact page. And I'm really willing to, um, to do, to share our story in whatever way, whether it's through organ donation um, organizations or community groups, libraries, um, medical organizations. I just, I want people to understand that really we do have a choice in how we respond and that smiling, it, that we should be able to do more than smile after someone passes away. We should be able to really embrace life and, and, and go beyond that. So I, you know, I appreciate you letting me share it today. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And I'm grateful that I read the book and that you came on. So thank you. This was great talking to you. you it was too. really, yeah, it was I appreciated you. I'm glad that you read the book and I'm, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you because it, it sounds like a lot of the same, a lot we, um, we've done a deep dives into many of the same topics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely, it's so it's been so great. I've met so many amazing people that like I had a call earlier with a woman that I recorded with a couple weeks ago because I wanted to know more about something she was doing. So it's been a really I only wish like it could be a whole community that I could really like because everybody's got all these little like pearls of wisdom and wealths of knowledge. And it's like I just want to tap into all of it. So exactly. Well, we'll, we'll definitely keep in touch. And um, um, yeah, it's all good. So it looks like we're good on Fireside. So thank you, everybody, for listening. And Susan, thank you so much for your time. Take care. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Wondering what comes next and what it all means? Head over to Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Also, if you could take a minute to rate and review my podcast, I would really appreciate it. Stay tuned as we continue to explore life, death, and the space between.